John, thank you for uh, leading us in singing, filling in for Ron while he gets a couple of weeks of well-deserved vacation. Thank you for getting me up here before 11 o'clock. This is fabulous. I'm just teasing. Maybe I'm not. In any case. Hey, it's uh, December 30th. That brings us right to the end of this calendar year, 2007. Went pretty fast, didn't it? It really flew by this year. And uh, the older I get, the faster the years seem to go. One of the things that I really enjoy this time of year is the various news publications, magazines, and that sort. And occasionally uh, you get to see a TV special where they recount all that had gone on in the year just past. And it's, it's amazing as you look back and you see the various events that have happened in the country, around the world, those kinds of things. And you go, wow, that happened this year. I had forgotten how quickly I had forgotten the various things that have occurred. Remembering is such a powerful tool. And God enlists that of course God made us and gave us that unique ability to remember and God enlists that faculty in us to help us to remember him to draw close to him to worship him through remembering what it is he's done and God used that specifically that call to remembrance a number of times throughout the Old Testament to his people He would call them to remember the great acts of deliverance in the Exodus. Over and over again, he would call and draw the nation back to the Exodus to remember that God delivered them in a very concrete, very special, very miraculous sort of way. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, that would be page 226. You would arrive there at Joshua Chapter 4. This is just one of those sections of the Old Testament where God is indeed calling his people to remember his great acts of deliverance. And this one stands out in a special way because of what God tells the people to do to help them remember what it is he's done. And not just to help them, but to help the future generations to remember the mighty deliverance of God. You'll remember here that Joshua has taken over leadership of the nation of Israel from Moses, the great deliverer who led them out of the Egyptian captivity. Moses has now died there on the plains of Moab to the east of the promised land. And and Joshua, the mantle of leadership has been handed to him, and he is the one who will bring the people now into that great promised land. They have been wandering for 40 years in the in the desert while that first generation that came out of Egypt died off because of their sinful grumbling. And so a new generation has arisen. The children, those that were under 20 years of age, are the only ones who have survived the desert wanderings. And so now they have come to adulthood and they're now getting ready to go into the land. And God says to Joshua that you need to do something really specific, Joshua, to help this generation not to forget as prior generations have done. And not only to help this generation not to forget, but to help their children and their children's children to remember the great act 
of deliverance. And so there, as they stand on the, on the plains of Moab, ready to enter in, they have to cross one more formidable barrier that separates them from the promised land, that is the Jordan River. And as God parted the Red Sea, He's going to, in an amazing way, part the Jordan River here for the people to enter into the land. Now, I want to actually pick up the reading this morning here in chapter 3, verse 11, and we'll get a little bit of a running start at it. All I'm going to do is read this. I'll make a few comments along the way. But I'm going to do this to set up something that I want to do here with you this morning, and that is to help us remember what God has done in our lives in this past year. Many of you have uh, no doubt wondered what in the world is going on up front there. Someone said, are we supposed to pray real hard and see if they become bread? And I said, well, start praying and we'll see what happens. Uh, And uh, others thought perhaps because of my last sermon that they were um, being brought in. But in any case, um, they're too big to throw. In any case, uh, they're there and uh, as things uh, uh, unfold for us this morning, you'll see their purpose. Okay, so beginning here in Joshua, chapter three, verse 11. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Of course, the ark of the covenant symbolizes the presence of God with his people. So God is preceding the people into the land. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. And the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in one heap. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the ark of the covenant before the people. And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, parenthesis, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest, that the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarephan. And those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off so that the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Pause right there. We're given some geographical and uh, and uh, climactic uh, features here so that we might understand what's going on. <clears throat> it's inserted here, the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest. That's because of the melting snow coming down off of Mount Hermon in the north. So the snow cap is, mounting, is melting there and the water is pouring down first into the Sea of Galilee and then out through the Sea of Galilee and down the Jordan River. At this time of year, it says that the, um, the water overflows its banks. And people tell us that uh, at this point in time, the river could be somewhere close to a mile wide. Okay, just to get an idea of what we're talking about in terms of volume of water. We're talking about a mile wide river. Now, most people in California have no idea what a mile wide river looks like. Okay, you think the L.A. River is a river and uh, that's a drainage culvert. Okay, we're talking about a real river. 
a mile wide. Furthermore, it says that it was cut off a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. We're talking here from there to Jericho. We're talking about a 15 mile wide gap in the Jordan River. Okay. So, again, you've been to Universal Studios and you've seen how they stood up the waters of the Red Sea so Charlton Heston could get through, okay, and it's about 12 feet wide. We're talking about a 15-mile-wide gap in a, in a river that's a mile in width because of the overflowing snowmelt. This is an incredible miracle that God is doing to deliver His 2.5 million people into the Promised Land. That's something you'd want to remember, don't you think? All right. Verse 1, chapter 4. Now it came about. When all the nations had finished crossing the Jordan, or the nation rather, had finished crossing the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan from the place where the, uh, the priest's feet were standing firm and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. Get stones, Joshua, and get them from the middle of the river. You know, these beautiful river stones that have been, that have been rounded and made smooth by the passing current over the years. Gather river stones, Joshua, so in future generations there will be no doubt of where these rocks came from. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean? Dad, what are these stones for? How did these great big river stones get here? How did they get them out of the middle of the river to place them here? Son, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Therefore, you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. And thus the sons of Israel did, as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they are there to this day. That must have been something to see. They are out in the middle of the Jordan River, a great big stack of stones that would be visible when the water is running low. Hey, Dad, how those rocks get there in the middle of the river? Who stacked them up? Son, that's a great question. Let me tell you about it. For the priests, verse 10, who carried the ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua and the people hurried and crossed. And it came about when all the people had finished crossing that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people. And the sons of Reuben, 
the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them about 40,000 equipped for war crossed over for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. Now the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came about, when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up to the dry ground, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. I wonder what the people downstream thought when that happened, huh? Hopefully they weren't out picking up shiny pebbles in the stream bed. Now, verse 19, the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. That's the same day, by the way, as the Passover was instituted 40 years before. And those 12 stones which they had taken up from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? I had a, someone ask me this morning, a young one said, Pastor, what are these stones up here? And I said, well, you just watch and you'll see. Okay, these stones here this morning were intended to provoke your questioning. Okay. What are these stones? Verse 22, then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea when he dried uh, <clears throat> when he dried up before us until we had crossed. Then all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. These are stones of remembrance, stones of remembrance. They are designed here in Joshua 4 to provoke questioning. They were specifically chosen from the middle of the river so there would be absolutely no question in anyone's mind as to where these stones came from. They obviously came from the middle of the river. How does someone get them from the middle of a river? Whenever you walked down by the river crossing there at Jericho in the years to come, you would see a pile of stones and it would provoke you to question and the reason it is intended to provoke you to question it is so that the story of God's deliverance can be recounted to you. Beloved, there is an economy of miracles in this world. If that were not true, they wouldn't be miracles. If they were happening all the time, it would not be the miraculous. God invades space and time only very occasionally and does something so spectacular that it can only be explained by the insertion of the Almighty Himself into space and time. Great miracles that He does in order to show the people who He is or to give confirmation to His spokesman. This is a massive miracle here. This is of the order of the parting of the Red Sea. This is incredible. A 15 mile wide gap in a river that's a mile wide and overflowing its banks. 
Miracles like that are not repeated. They don't happen every day. They don't even happen every lifetime. Indeed, they happen so infrequently that they are miraculous. But God wants His people to remember Him. And so the way He does that here is He establishes something that is to draw your questioning. It's to cause you to reflect. It's to provoke the question of the, of the younger generation that the older generation might recount to them, might remember for them, might pass down to them the great deliverance of God. That's how future generations can participate in what God has done. This is a special service this morning. The reason it's a special service is because I have asked a, a group of individuals to come here and to share with you what God has done. 2007 has been a significant year in their life. God has been at work in their life. And they want to share that with you so that you can enter in to the joy of the occasion. When they finish, they're going to come down and add a stone to the stack so that by the time we're done, we'll have a pile of stones as a remembrance. Good morning. Uh, it's a great privilege to be here and uh, to share my testimony. My name is Chris Harris. If those don't know me, my, I'm married to my wife, Roxana. We've been coming here for about almost a year, and it's, it's a privilege to come here and be a part of this body. Okay, well, here's, here's my testimony. I stand here this morning right with God, the supreme being who is creator and ruler of the universe, not because of anything I have done, or not because I repeated a superstitious prayer one time, not because I walked an aisle or, or read my Bible or go to church on a regular basis. It's because of the sheer pleasure and grace of God who stepped out of eternity, became a man and died a death I deserved. This is one snapshot of a life out of millions that God has chosen to show mercy upon. This is my testimony. And I pray that the Lord may use it how he sees fit. I was born on February 11th, 1982. I have one sister, Crystal, who fellowships here as well. Um, she's a year and a half younger than I. And to describe a little bit about how I was growing up, I was like a bull in a china shop. My family has told me that I, I, was, a, I was a little terror. I broke everything, so they had to strap things down. I was a handful. Uh, growing up in a Christian home, I had a knowledge of the things of God, but doubt was always in the back of my mind about God and who he claimed to be especially when my mother died of a brain tumor. I was eight years of age. I thought, how could a God of love leave two kids with no stable father to take care of us? Um, I truly hated God for what he did to me and my sister. That being 17 years ago, I remember it so very clearly. It was at the viewing when my dad took my sister in his arms and me by the hand, and we walked to the casket where my mother was placed in and I reached out to touch her cheek and it was ice cold and rock hard. And then it finally hit me. My mom is gone and God allowed it to happen. And my mother's older sister and her husband took custody of my sister and me. And not too long after the funeral, we went on to uh, we went on to Washington to take a trip. Uh, we took an RV which had bunk beds in the back. And, and while on the road, I would go back and lie down and look in the, out the window in the blue sky. And I just remember I would just cuss and 
blasphemed the Lord's name and just, just a lot of hatred in my heart towards God and what he did. I was very confused. Uh, during my high school years, I, I, it was as if I blocked God out of my mind. And the things that replaced him were all about girls, sports and music. When I graduated high school, I started working and making decent money and living in a bachelor's pad, which consisted of, uh, of the party life, as well as drugs, sex and alcohol. And during this period of my life, God spared me from diving into deeper immorality. It could happen. It could have happened. It could have happened so easily. Uh, this went on for a couple of years. Uh, this point in time, I started having thoughts in my mind that would come in and said, what am I here for? Or what's this? What's this all about? What's life all about? Um, now, these questions wouldn't pop in all the time. They would just come in from time to time. And I would just sit and think. A buddy from work invited me and my girlfriend, who later became my wife, to go with him to church Sunday night. And thinking of ways to come up with an excuse to tell him that I had other plans, I simply agreed and went. Uh, so sitting there, not sure why I decided to go, this preacher stood up and started stay- saying stuff out of the Bible that was piercing me right in the heart. He was saying things like, none is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He went on to say he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you to him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so that's what happened. I believed and I repented of my sins. And since that day, January 25th, 2004, my life has been turned upside down. Or rather, right side up. Now I have purpose and joy. And Psalm 16:11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And now I had an incredible hunger for the Word of God. I started reading my Bible, hanging out with other believers, praying to God throughout the day, just talking and communing with Him. I started going to Bible studies and learning these great doctrines from the scriptures and understanding what one pastor says. And I quote, the gospel isn't one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in rightly approached. All the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. End of quote. There are a few things that stand out which the Lord has used since my conversion They've had a tremendous impact in my Christian life. No doubt the Bible is first and utmost important in my Christian growth. For in it, God's revelation is revealed to me and all that pertains to life and godliness. Coming to understand the impact of the fall of man and how radically depraved he is, as well as studying and learning the doctrine of regeneration. That is how a Christian is born again. Also, there has been a couple of works that the Lord has used. And this DVD here, Amazing Grace, has really impacted my life. We sell it at the book, Nick. <laughs> God's Passion for His Glory by John Piper. And this is a recent book that I just read. It's The Glory of Christ as a Puritan Paperback by John Owen, abridged. So these works have had a big impact in my life. 
Okay. I am filled with joy to know I will be praising God for all eternity for sending us his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who acting on my behalf, kept God's holy law perfectly in so doing worked out a perfect righteousness, which is imputed or credited to my account. The moment God brought me to faith in him, I am now free. I'm free from all my guilt and condemnation because of what Christ has done for me on that cross. I can say because of Jesus Christ, I no longer hate God, but I treasure him. For God has given me a peace that surpasses all understanding. God the Father sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to suffer that he might bring us to God. This means he sent Christ to bring us to the deepest, longest, greatest joy a human can possibly have, which is God himself. Good morning. My name is Linda Arroyo. Um, In November of last year, Pastor Forsythe did a sermon on the church of Laodicea. And that sermon had a major impact in my life. Um, And it was a big wake-up call for me. At the end of the sermon, he challenged us to examine ourselves to see if any of these areas that he was going to mention was true of us. And um, one of the things he hit upon was church attendance. He said that every week, 20% of the congregation is missing. And I was very convicted because I knew I was one of those 20%. He said in the next statement that church is not optional. Another area that he asked was if our prayer life was shallow and inconsistent. And I knew, and I had to be honest with myself, and knew that my prayer life was inconsistent along with my Bible reading. Even though I knew I had read through the Bible several times, I knew that it was still inconsistent. And um, I had this fear of being this lukewarm believer. And um, God really woke me up that, that Sunday I began to take seriously my time with the Lord. And, um, you know, it can be very easy when your husband's retired and you have no kids at home to sleep in in the morning. And I had to ask myself, do I love sleep more than I love God meeting with the Lord? And um, so I got up in the morning and um, God is so good. He's so faithful. I during that time, I saw so many answers to prayer concerning my family and my children, my grandchildren. And um, also, Pastor asked another question. Um, Is there a lack of concern for the advancement of the gospel? You don't plan or pray for it. And I had to be honest in that area also, that I wasn't as concerned for the loss as I should be. Um, I knew that when the Upland campaign started up that God wanted me to go. There was also one area in my life that I had struggled with, with sin for a a long time, and I really struggled back and forth with this area. And um, and I had, as I read 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
I could not say that I am doing this, God, for your glory. And the conviction was very strong, and I repented of that. And I did. I had a fear of being a stumbling block to uh, my family, and um, I gave it to the Lord. And that, from that day on, God completely removed that area in my life that I had struggled with for so long. And I just wanted to take this time to praise him because he's worthy. My name is Steve Thomas. This is my wife, Laura. We've been coming to um, FBC for since 1995 now. And uh when uh, Vince had asked me to share our testimonies with the congregation, I want to say, are you crazy? <laughs> He's been our counselor for the last few months, and uh, our testimony is anything but pretty. Because I knew if I was to share it, I was going to have to share some things that are pretty dirty and private about myself and uh, terrified me. But then I got to thinking before I said no that in a congregation this size, there are probably those who, like me, have been trying to break the chains of habitual sin. Or maybe their marriage is falling apart. Or maybe they feel that their sin is so egregious that God can't forgive them. So I hope that maybe our testimony to someone that experienced the kind of sins that we have may be encouraged. For the last two and a half years, out of the last three years, uh, my life has been marred by the chains of habitual sin. I lost my joy. I felt hopeless. I was powerless to break the chains that I was in. See, I'd become an idolater. I was worshiping at the temple of leisure and pleasure and sacrificing my righteousness the altar of self-indulgence. I've become enslaved to internet pornography, to gluttony, love of money, materialism, and pride. My life was out of control. And I'd get bothered by my conscience, and I would try to reach down and pull myself up, myself up by my own bootstrap, but I lacked the strength of character to do so. I would uh, spend hours in front of the TV trying to lose myself in the movies and programming and even consider divorce, running away, giving up. I was sick with sin. It was affecting my marriage. It was affecting my relationship with my children. It was affecting my relationship with my church family and our business. Like the children of Israel in Jeremiah's day, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I was trying to satisfy my thirst in a cesspool that was disease, full of disease and death. I had dropped out of ministries. I made excuses to miss church. I'm, like, I'm sure like many, uh, when I was asked, uh, how are you doing today, Steve? I'd reply, I'm doing great. How are you doing? And that was a lie. I refused to get let go of my sin, and as a result, my wife and I uh, constantly fought. We agreed on little. Um, I, was, I developed a critical attitude towards her. 
And instead of seeking God, I plunged deeper, taking Laura down with me. Not that my sins were less or more forgivable than Steve's. I also find my, I found myself so entrenched in my sin, I was drowning. We are one flesh. My sin affects my husband. His sin affects me. And our sin affects the whole body of Christ. The last four years, life circumstances and situations revealed to me just how sinful a heart condition I had. Maybe I knew it. No one else could see it, maybe. I likened it to a hot water, those circumstances to hot water revealing the flavor of the tea bag. And I grieved on the bitter flavor I tasted. I was hurt by my husband, and I would justify my sins of bitterness, resentment, anger, pride, and need of control. I became depressed, I lost my joy in living, and I kept deep in my heart. And I knew deep in my heart that I had left my first love. I felt no love for my husband, resentment towards our business partners and others, and doubted my salvation. How can I be saved and be so deep in my sin? But I knew that I needed to take every thought captive to Christ Repent and return to my God that loves me so much. About mid-year, I couldn't go on any longer and uh, knew something had to be done. Uh, So I enrolled in an online uh, course, uh, Setting Captives Free, that is dedicated to Christ-centered hope for those who are caught in um, habitual sins. Uh, It provides some accountability. It was uh, Bible-based and encouraged me to drink from the living water. John 4, 13 and 4, 4, 13 through 14 says that Jesus answered and said unto her, Everyone that drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. The Course encouraged me to confess my sins to confess them to God, to confess them to those that I had sinned against, and to elicit the uh, help of a, of, of a pastor. Encourage me to spend time in God's word and with the one who provides the living water. So it's time to man up. Uh, I cried out to God. I confessed my sins. I begged for his forgiveness. I asked for his strength. I asked that he renew my mind. I had to confess to my wife, ask her forgiveness. I called for an appointment to uh, speak to uh, Pastor Vince. I told him that I needed some counseling. And, of course, Steve and I were not communicating very well those days, so I didn't know what was going on with him and what his thoughts and everything were at, at the time. But I knew that I had to do something, and I realized that I wanted to seek the counsel of godly men that would take me to the wisdom of God's word. As I thought of Ephesians 5:22 through 33, I saw the wife and the husband being counseled together and realized I needed to wait, pray, and see how, my, how God might intervene. The next thing I knew, Steve had told me that he had gone to visit Pastor Vince and that Vince would like to see both of us and... Uh, come in and speak with him. Little did I know, 
at that time, God would be doing a good work in my heart and my relationship to my husband and my relationship relationship with him, my God. I had left my first love, but he had not forsaken me. I can now see how he used all things in my life, even the evidence of my sin, to continue changing me and drawing me back to himself. Over the last six months, we've learned that God is faithful even when we're unfaithful, that his word is true, that he sustains us. He delivered me from Internet pornography. He is delivering me from gluttony. He has given me hope. He is sustaining me by his grace. And he is renewing my mind by his word. Lessons I've learned this year. It's about God. It's not about me. I have nothing God needs. I need him. I have no power to save myself. I'm saved because of what he has done for me and not by my own efforts. Only his spirit living in me can bring about change. It's all about him and his glory, and not mine. Uh, one of Pastor David's sermons kind of strikes to me is that I come to the cross naked, dirty, empty handed. It's also about others not having my own way. About loving my wife as Christ loves the church, about considering the needs of others before my own. Because of my sin I, and because we're here now, I, I thought it would probably be appropriate that uh, understanding that the church is a body and understanding that it needs all its parts healthy and clean, functioning. I need to confess to you that I brought sickness and disease into the body with my sin, and I ask that you forgive me. I ask that you pray for us. And we praise God that we serve him. And we want to, with you, diligently pursue Christ, courageously proclaim him. Paul said, being confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Good morning. My name is Bernie Sestone. Uh, we do all have short memories, so I'd encourage each one of you to take a mental picture, a snapshot of the, uh, the stones here, and um, use that mental picture to bring to mind uh, the testimonies that you've heard this morning of God's faithfulness. And, and more importantly, use that picture to recall God's faithfulness in your own life. Lynn and I married in June 1963, and God called her home in May 2006 after a battle with cancer. Those of you who didn't know her or would like a memory refresher uh, can go to mem.com and just search for Lynn Sestone. Uh, there you can find a movie of her life. Uh, you can read comments that others have left in the guest book, or you can sign the guest book if you like. This morning, I'm going to get very personal about um, God's faithfulness in my life, sharing something that I have never shared with anyone before, not family, not fellow elders, 
not even Lynn. And we shared very openly together. I discussed everything with Lynn except classified work from my job, uh, items from the elder board that were not appropriate to discuss, and this item which I will talk about this morning. My threefold prayer is that as a result, you'll treasure the gospel more, you'll treasure your marriage more, and you'll become better prepared for the future. I often prayed for God uh, to bless and protect our marriage and make it a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. Lynn heard those prayers almost daily. But on two or three occasions, I privately prayed that it would be better for one of us to have cancer than for one of us to be unfaithful. I concluded it didn't really matter which one of us, just that cancer for either would be better than infidelity for either. I had never experienced the ravages of cancer close up before when I prayed that prayer. I'll come back to that, but let me tell you a little bit about being widowed. Some of you here have already experienced it and uh, will relate to what I have to say. And to those who have not, let me remind you that if the Lord doesn't return first, uh, nearly half of you here this morning will. Second Corinthians 1.4 tells us that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I experienced my first grief in 1971 when our fourth child, Becky, died at four days old, and my second in 2000 when my dad died. Those were painful experiences, but they in no way prepared me for Lynn's death. The loss of a spouse is loss of someone you are one flesh with, I had heard it described as an amputation, and although I never experienced an amputation, I did experience paralysis from the neck down in 1991 due to bone spurs in my neck and a fall from the roof of my house. I can tell you the loss of Lynn tested my faith far more than that paralysis. When Lynn was diagnosed, she never complained, never said, why me? Instead, she said that God must have a purpose in this. She would witness and minister to the many medical personnel who cared for her. Lynn loved life and didn't want to die so young, but she didn't fear death because she trusted in God's faithfulness and knew where she was going. On one of the many trips to Kaiser Hospital in Fontana, I told Lynn that if there were any way that I could go through what she was going through for her, that I would. That could have elicited a variety of responses. But Lynn simply looked at me and softly said, I know you would. You might have heard of survivor's guilt. My sister's mother-in-law upon Widowhead said, if I could have been with him more in the hospital, I could have helped him live longer. At the time, I thought that sounded irrational. But after Lynn died, I found myself thinking, that if I could have done a little more research on treatments and risks, I might have avoided the treatment sequence that killed her. But God reminded me that he was in complete control. 
I had never personally experienced depression and didn't understand it in others. But after Lynn died, I found that it took great conscious effort on my part to do things that used to come automatically. I'm talking about things like getting out of bed in the morning, eating and taking a shower. It took me over a month to realize that I had lost my walking body and needed to exercise. Lack of exercise was adding to how bad I felt. And so I began walking and exercising again. You can't predict how or when a pang of grief will strike you. At the Shepherds Conference last year, one of the speakers, Jim Deffer, was emphasizing that all the shepherds would face opposition. He stated it can be as dramatic as Jim Elliott's death or as personal as struggling with your wife's failing health and keeping hold of your faith. I let out an involuntary gasp, and one of our men put his arm around me in comfort. Any of you who have seen the movie Sound of Music might recall a line uh, from the housekeeper to Maria saying, Ever since the captain lost his wife, no more music, nothing that reminds him of her. Music brings back memories in a powerful way. There are certain songs that always bring tears to my eyes. I am still unable to sing all the way through in Christ alone. When I try to sing the line from life's first cry to final breath, my voice just fades away. I witness life's first cry from our four youngest children, and I witness Lynn's final breath. But it's a good reminder of our own mortality. Ecclesiastes 7.2 states, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18 tells us, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I used to thank God for giving me Lynn every day. And after about two months, I was given the faith to thank him for calling her home when and how he did. As I prayed, God helped me back to reality. First, he assured me that my private prayer was true, that cancer was indeed better than infidelity. Then he pointed out that since it was Lynn who had the cancer, she never had to experience the grief of widowhood. I found answers to unasked questions, and I found peace. He reminded me of how faithful he had been to us over the years. Did I really believe that his faithfulness would stop now? He pointed out that he loves Lynn more than I ever did reminded me that she had placed her complete trust in Jesus Christ and was now happy with him in heaven. God gave us 43 beautiful years of happy marriage together, and he gave us eight years in retirement together. Amazing, since we were both only 64 when she died. He gave us seven children and nine grandchildren so far. I'm still counting. Uh, And over the course of our marriage, 
he gave us well over 12,000 miles of walking together. That's more than two round trips across the country. He extended her life after diagnosis from an expectancy of two months to 13 months. And it wasn't in a hospital. It was walking, bicycling, visiting with friends and family, playing with grandchildren and helping others. Lynn died peacefully at her daughter's home without a respirator, just as she wanted. Without my faith, I don't know how I go, could go through the loss of Lynn. When I told God how I grieved, he reminded me of my promise to Lynn. When I told her it was okay to go and be with Jesus, that I would look after the children and grandchildren, and they would look after me. He reminded me of my church family, and that I was to continue to shepherd the flock. In Bellevue Memorial Park in Ontario, there's a granite marker with a picture of Lynn and me on it. The inscription reads, Saved by grace, walking together with Jesus. My name has a single date. Lynn's name has two dates. But they're not separated by a dash. You see, they're separated by a cross. It's what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ between those two dates that matters most. Lynn confessed with her mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in her heart that God raised him from the dead. And so, because we have a faithful God, although her mortal body lies in the ground, I know that her immortal soul is with him in heaven. Those are five very different testimonies, but they all have a common and united theme, and that is the grace of God. Grace that draws us to Him in salvation, grace that sustains us day by day, moment by moment, through some of the most difficult parts of life. If you don't know that grace in your own life this morning, today is your day. Don't leave this room. Don't walk out through those doors without coming to terms with your Creator. Without repenting of your sin, your self-will, your rebellious, independent way of living. The disaster you have made of your life. And calling out to Christ to save you. We've included for you in your bulletin a card. You might take that out if you would, please, and take a peek at it with me. Bernie's right. Take a good mental picture of this pile of stones here and remember what you have heard. But I want you to take a step beyond that. This card bears a few verses from Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. 
Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, the judgments he uttered. If you'll turn that card over, there is a place for you. Sometime in the next couple of days, you get by yourself alone, get out a pen or a pencil, and let the Spirit of God search your mind and bring to your own recollection something that God has done in your life. Some way that the grace of God has been manifested to you. And write yourself a little note. Stick it in the flyleaf of your Bible and refer to it from time to time. We have such short memories. They need constant refreshing. Let me pray and, and John will come and lead us a song. If you would like to have someone open the Bible with you this morning and deal with your soul with you for counsel, something going on in your life that needs to be addressed, you want to know how to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith, there will be some folks available right over here by this lighted cross at the end of the service. You come here, they'll take you into the prayer room and, and you'll do business with your Creator, okay? Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for your sustaining grace. We thank you for drawing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, opening our eyes to see the reality of our own lost condition, and the beauty and loveliness of a nail-pierced Savior who holds open his arms and beckons us to come. Our Father, we thank You for the way You have watched over and provided and protected and sustained us through this past year. Every one of us, Lord, have personal stories of how You have worked in our lives. Help us to remember, Lord. Let us be a people who remember, not a forgetful, unmindful, selfish, preoccupied, self-absorbed, group of people, but let us be a people who humble their hearts before you and, and recall your goodness, your glory, and your greatness. Our Father, as we come to this, the end of this year and enter into a next, we want to enter it only if you will go there before us and lead the way. Surround us, envelop us, comfort us in your love. Pour out your grace and mercy upon us, not because we deserve it, but because your Son gave himself to make it true. We thank you in his name. Amen.